How are we doing? Okay. With your vision? Uh, oh, good job, John. Good job. That wasn't me. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. Just be quiet for a second. Let me, let me, you know, start things. Okay. <laughs> uh, how are we doing? Real Vision. Uh, just here doing a video um, with uh, two other guys from the exchange. We're going to go over a couple uh, different macro ideas and kind of thoughts on where things are going in the current world that we're in. Uh, coming out of 2020, definitely interesting time. And I think as we move into 2021, there's a lot of uh, risks that we see, obviously, uh, uh, some potential upsides in some markets. And I think the things that we're talking about with um, a lot of the, the macro stuff that um, Ahan is putting out with uh, his newsletter and then also John with his, I think they're going to mesh really, really well to kind of provide a good macro view of the world. So um, yeah, what, well, I know Ahan, you were just going to ask John something, but why don't you uh, go over Prometheus really fast and then we'll, we'll uh, jump to that. Yeah. So um, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, yep. So Prometheus is kind of, uh, it's, it's a free news publication, which I've started. Um, and honestly, news publication probably isn't exactly the more research newsletter, right? Um, and the idea is basically to, you know, to bring granular, kind of sophisticated, in-depth macro research to the general retail public, right? And um, the idea, you know, comes from, you know, me having worked in the macro space for, you know, a major macro hedge fund, and then, you know, also working in the FX space. And kind of doing research there and you know seeing the disparity between the tools available to the retail public versus what's available at some of these institutions and kind of trying to close the gap between the two and really give you know really high quality stuff um on a regular basis to you know people that are trading their own accounts and things like that yeah so i'm actually i'm actually curious kind of on this topic in general because you're trying to provide macro research for retail people. Uh, yeah. I mean, especially that gap that exists. Maybe, you, you know, we were talking previously on our last call yeah. about how a lot of the, you know, so-called tools and information that was only available for institutional, you know, people and stuff like that. Now, you know, retail people can have, they can trade off of. Um, yeah. You know, especially with Prometheus and maybe just your general outlook on how, how exactly someone just coming to the space like uses macro to trade or just manage their portfolio? Like, you know, yeah. why, like how exactly does Prometheus fit into that? Is it like a supplement? Is it a good paradigm? Like how do, how do you think about that? Well, so, so here's the thing, right? Like if you're completely new to this game, uh, I think the, one of the most important things you can probably take away is that, um, you know, most people will end up in equities and things like that. Um, and while, you know, stock picking and, you know, things where you're doing security by security analysis is extremely valuable if you can understand that and do it the best, by and large, the, the biggest swings in your P&L um, as a trader or investor, they're going to come from big macro moves, right? Um, so having a good framework of understanding of what is actually driving asset markets um, from a macro perspective is really going to help you kind of stabilize your PL over time. So, you know, you can be the best stock picker in the world. Um, but if you, one, don't structure your portfolio, right. And two, don't understand that the biggest losses on your portfolio are going to come, are going to come at a time when all your positions are going to be correlated. That is during a recession, 
right? So just kind of understanding that and then kind of, you know, getting a little bit more nuanced about it, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you can start tilting the sectors, the multitude of asset classes that are available to a retail investor now, right? And even, you know, things like options that are available to a retail investor that weren't previously available. And just correctly how to use those tools in a way where you don't burn yourself and you're kind of keeping the big picture in mind. Um, I think that's, that, that's a really good place to start. And so Prometheus is really about... Yeah, on, you know, giving you the high level stuff, because, you know, at the end of the day, we deal mostly with growth, inflation, risk premium, monetary policy. Sure. But the, the idea is to give you the top line, right? So the growth and the inflation, but under the growth and the inflation to get to those big picture ideas, there's a lot of work that needs to be done that takes a lot of time. So the idea with Prometheus is really to kind of do the work so that you can get the big picture and make good decisions. Right. Um... Yeah, I think it's for anyone who's watching, I'm going to I'm going to post a link for his research and you can subscribe or anything or if you can just go on there and read it. Um, but I think that's that's really key because there is a lot of times, you know, there's just so much macro data and content that you can't even get down into the nitty gritty of stuff and you need someone to synthesize it for you, but still use use and show source material. And I think that's that's what Prometheus does. Um, I just kind of like, you know, what what exactly is happening i also want to say i i think you know i kind of started reading books on you know stock picking and value investing and like stuff like that when i first kind of started being introduced to finance and it was it was interesting to kind of you know you know see these different ideas and how you pick a stock and stuff like that and then to come into the macro scene and I remember, uh, I remember Raul saying once, you know, the, you know, or basically he said, you know, the biggest variable that you're moves stock prices are the main thing that determines where a stock is going to trade or the price that it's going to trend at or wherever it might be is going to be where you are in the business cycle. And I think that that was really, really key um, because you can have different multiple expansions, different movements in your portfolio with different sectors as you move through different stages in the business cycle, whether you're going, you know, down or you're coming back out of it. And I didn't think I got right away why in the world we would need to like know macro um, kind of for some of those bigger picture ideas. Cause I think a lot of times it seems really up in the, up in the clouds, like, Oh, this is what growth is. And everyone's like, okay, well I'm invested in tech. So how, like, why does that matter? Right. So I, yeah, I, I think, that, I think you can talk I think you about talked something. Sorry. Uh, I think you touched on something uh, really important, right? Which is, you know, where you are in the business cycle. And the thing is, so there's a big difference between like you were talking about stock picking and how that kind of, you know, if you have a discounted cash flow kind of model, it makes it makes it much harder for you to really understand that most of your PL is going to be driven by what's happening with this business cycle thing. Right. And what is that business cycle really? Um, you know, Archetypically, you kind of have the the central bank of a country during a recession come in and, you know, create a, a, a large amount of stimulus, kind of, you know, whatever you want to call it, you can call it printing, you can call it reserve creation, whatever you want to call it, right? And then as you kind of get through the hump, right, mm -hmm. due to the stimulus, over time on that base of money that the central bank has injected, you have a creation of credit. And credit is really kind of, 
um, this magical thing which is created between two people, right? Um, and when you create credit at the same time, so you're borrowing, yes, but at the same time, you're creating assets, right? Yeah. And the, the impact of creating these assets and also creating, you know, lending is what drives the business cycle. So coincident with credit creation, you will have asset value appreciation because credit is an asset for some people. Right. So maybe, maybe both of you guys can give me some thoughts on that because, um, is, and maybe, maybe it's a both and, but like the business cycle fluctuating up and down and having that cyclical phenomenon, if you'll say, is that primarily because of like gr- just growth, like, you know, growth in the economy, or is that primarily like that wouldn't happen unless there was credit? Obviously, those two things are working together, but let's say we had an economy without any debt. Would you still have a cyclical phenomenon? Well, I mean, the, the, the hard part about that is that the counterfactual doesn't exist, right? Um, so so it, it'd, be, it'd be pretty hard for us to, to, to assess what happens. But so, so broadly speaking, right, when you look at an economy, what drives economic performance over really long periods of time mm-hmm. is, is two things. How fast your working age population is growing and how fast your productivity is growing, right? Which is kind of what you're saying, right? Like that, okay, if we d- just take away, you know, all the credit stuff and all the money stuff, that basically if people get more productive and they make more stuff, then we, we'll, have, we'll have stable growth over time. But you're right in the sense that, you know, when you add credit into the equation, it kind of acts like, it's almost like steroids for your productivity, right? So for a given amount of productivity, you can squeeze w- way more out if you if you're able to leverage it with capital sure so by increasing amounts of capital you 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 essentially you're when you borrow you're borrowing from from future income right so right. You, you end up creating this situation where you can augment existing productivity by using capital mm-hmm. now what usually happens is that for whatever reason right like um say there's a tech bubble or tech boom let's not call it a bubble let's call it a tech boom you have a tech boom where there's a new technology and everyone's excited about it. And, you know, a, a comp- companies are doing really well and have good earnings and things like that. Uh, on the back of this, people want to own this asset, right? So you want to invest in this asset. At the same time, this, uh, people that are making these assets want to grow these assets, right? Because they want to leverage their ability to raise capital now. Sure. Over time, this is a self-reinforcing kind of phenomena where these guys can continue to either borrow or get equity invested in them. Right. Sure. And people become more indebted or they own more equity in these in these companies. But at some point you have you have an inflection point. And usually this used to be the case where you would have slightly higher inflation and a central bank would come in and start, you know, trying to tighten monetary policy. Yeah. To kind of to kind of put the brakes on inflation. But what that also does is it makes it more expensive to borrow for these companies. Sure. Right. And, and, and that, that, that effect was usually what would kind of take you into a recession. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what's really unique about today, because today we haven't actually had a pullback in credit. So if you look at the COVID-19, COVID-19 crisis, what has actually happened is that we haven't had a massive pullback in credit because there was no need really. Financial conditions were fine. You had a massive, you had a massive drop actually in incomes and spending because of the COVID-19 restrictions. So yeah, archetypically, what you're saying is definitely right that you know, credit kind of causes recessions, but also you can have recessions that are caused by other things. Yeah, 
John, what, what were any kind of like thoughts on that or things that you see that you kind of like curious about? So I broadly agree with what Ahan said, but where I would disagree is that counterfactuals do exist in history and even today um, that actually helped prove his point. Um, Andrew Jackson, when he was president of the United States, abolished the American bank, which was America's first central bank created by Hamilton. And what ended up happening is that the economy um, essentially cratered as the government's one source of creating um, debt to help fund its obligations and what it needs to do in the day-to-day basis. And even to a certain extent, private businesses' ability to have safe collateral in U.S. debt essentially disappeared. And it was only through the sort of California gold rush that helped refill American currency reserves and help make the American currency strong again. Um, even to this day, um, there are a lot of what I've discovered in my research for RAL concerning emerging economies is that there are a lot of countries in Africa, in Asia, and even South America that don't have um, credit um, credit rates or debt rates given by official um, debt creditors such as Fitch, uh, Moody's, or Standard and Poor's. And the reason for that is because they have no outstanding international debt, even if they might have some domestic debt. And as a result, some of these more, uh, what you might call early development or primordial frontier emerging market economies, um, they rely on their ability to generate capital or money domestically in order to buy new things to help expand production. And that makes things incredibly hard because instead of taking out a loan, buying the machine that you need to start expanding now, you have to wait till your earnings, which come in at a very slow trickle, to come in for you to eventually buy the machine in cash only. And that's what a lot of these um, sub-Saharan African countries have to deal with unless they get an international sponsor like China to come in and do some deals behind closed doors. Um, Kenya is about to default on a whole bunch of debt to China because of this, because a lot of it's not public and you don't have international um, crediting agencies able to see what these projects look like and whether or not the state has the capability to pay them back. And so, as Ahan rightfully put it, um, the access to um, credit essentially allows you to juice your earnings and your ability to expand and produce more product. And we can see even to this day that um, despite how much people wish there was less credit in the system, um, if people want to grow their economies relatively smoothly, but also in a very short period of time, they need credit. And if you don't have credit, you sort of have to depend... uh, depend on a lot longer timescales and more long-term planning, which is sort of the compromise people have to make in real life. You could either make a lot of short-term decisions and hope they pan out, or you could plan for the long-term experience some slow growth, but it's consistent. And so you sort of have to decide whether or not you want to do this the the old-fashioned way, which is not accessing and tapping international capital, or you tap international capital where you have the potential to grow. Um, but at the same time, because you're accessing so much capital so quickly and no one's had the ability to sort of evaluate your capability of paying it back, you also might have a good chance to default. So maybe I can get your thoughts on, on this um, because it's just something I'm thinking through. When you look at any economy, whether that's the US, an emerging market or whatever it might be, it seems like there's these different levers you can pull for growth to be able to increase. And it seems like, you know, in this theoretical, nice, you know, perfect sense, if you have like these good, this good demographic base, 
you know, which sets a foundation for, you know, your GDP and consumer spending and all this other stuff. You know, good de demographic space, um, you know, developing infrastructure, you know, uh, and then also like this idea of credit, then it seems like there's going to be like some backing to growth and potential upside in, in that economy. What yeah. other things besides like demographics and like expansion of credit would you say that you're like, you would, you would specifically look for as you're going into like, uh, look at a, a specific country from a macro perspective? Sure. Um, what you sort of, there are a couple of key factors I traditionally look at. I call them the big three. You yeah. want demographics, financial conditions, and political conditions. Okay. Those three are, I think the three pillars, a fourth pillar would be geography. Um, so between 1989, the end of the Cold War till present, there's been a ton of capital in the system. Mm -hmm. And so countries that wouldn't have normally been able to access capital have been able to. So Brazil, for example, Brazil's geography is horrendous. There are only six different uh, areas where the mountains known as the escarpment, these big cliff sides. So if you look at a postcard of like um, San Paulo or any of these beach towns or beach cities in Brazil, you have these beautiful mountains that descend right into the ocean. Yeah, They're great for postcards, but bad for infrastructure because that means you can't build railroads, you can't build roads. And if there are places to build roads, they're so capital intensive that they're not financially typically feasible. Uh, but because there's been so much capital in the system, you've been able to build roads and rail, line, rail lines essentially up a vertical cliff face, which is what Brazil did. Yeah. Um, but with so many baby boomers retiring in Europe and the United States, which has been sort of the source of all this free and cheap capital, um, financial conditions are, are going to become significantly tighter for this decade and likely for most of the world for the preceding future with some exceptions. And so as a result, the big three become more important, financial conditions, political conditions, and dem demographics. Um, but if you're going to start breaking those into subcategories, what I would go to next is, does that young demographic, are they educated? Um, because if you have young workers, that's fine. But if they're not well-educated, you can't put them in factories. You can't put them into technical labor. You can't have them managing the factories. You have to bring in foreign help. Yeah. which is what a lot of these African countries have done. So Ethiopia, Kenya, South Africa, um, Zambia, Botswana, they have gotten a ton of capital from China, but all of the expertise and even the labor they've had to bring in, all Chinese. Hmm. Because despite having a young worker base, their young worker base isn't educated enough to build the roads, build the bridges, run the trains, yeah. or even manage some of these industrial facilities that they've set up in Ethiopia to build goods for Chinese consumers. Got it. So essentially what the Chinese have done is outsource their own labor, but sending their labor to go around the outsourcing, hmm. um, which is a huge problem if you're Africa, because while in growth terms, you're growing at five, six, 8% per year, sure. how much of that growth is going to your young, your young worker base? Almost right. none of it. And when you have a young worker base that's of militant age, so 18 to 30, if that group doesn't have jobs or prospects at all, they tend to start a revolution. Um, that's what we saw in Libya. That's what we saw in Egypt during the Arab Spring. Yeah. And Egypt reverted back to a dictatorship after a year of democracy, and Libya has never recovered. Mm -hmm. um, 
So Africa worries me a lot because their geography is just like Brazil's. You have these massive escarpments, these mountain ranges that prevent infrastructure from going into the interior to bring these goods out to the shores where they can be exported. Yeah. Um, but the two rivers that allow them to move capital cheaply, the Nile River is only accessible to the Egyptians. It's deep enough for um, these massive barges to move cargo up and down it. And then there's the Niger uh, River Delta, which is only navigable for certain portions of the year during the rainy season and the dry seasons. Sure. And so you sort of have to build your economy around those things, assuming your internal ethnic and racial problems aren't bad. Um, Egypt is all Arab, so they don't have to worry about religious or ethnic tensions, but because their young worker base isn't educated, they have to worry about revolution regardless. Yeah. Um, for Nigeria, not only do you have a really bad river to move goods, uh, but you lack a young educated worker base, but that's also ethnically and tribally divided against itself. Yeah. And so you have to worry about the fact that your young workers have no job prospects, but also the fact that you hate each other for reasons that are deeply historical. Got it. And so that's a huge barrier to development. Yeah, um, um, it seems, I know this is really helpful because you kind of see how like these small things can have a like asymmetrical impact, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, Ahan, kind of what, what are your thoughts when you're, when you're kind of, do you kind of have a similar paradigm as you're kind of maybe looking at macro context or do you have something a little bit different? Or what are your thoughts? Well, it's, it's really interesting to hear, hear John talk about this stuff, right? Because um, the way I look at the world is, well, while I totally agree with him about the, about the big picture things, sure. uh, about the three big picture things he, he's, he's talked about, um, it's, uh, it's not really been in my toolbox to be in, the, be in the political analysis kind of game as much as he is. So, the, so it's really interesting for me to hear kind of his perspective about how the interplay between economics and you know the the um, the civil implications of those of those economics. Um, you know, you prefaced this by saying, you know, how how do you look? You know, what are the things other than growth and kind of credit that you look at? Um, and the what what I will say to that is the 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 first thing that really strikes me about that is honestly, yeah, you can look at the relative conditions, you know, between countries and things like that, but but. To, the truth be told, there isn't much else in the world other than that when it comes to economics. Um, you know, when you when you when you include money and credit, that's the sum of all economic activity. You know, from the demand side at least. Um, I think the real question is, what is underlying those things, right? And what is kind of driving the the, the money and credit creation? Um, so, kind of to put that in perspective today, right? You know. You, you, you've had, over the last year, you basically had the largest monetary impulse you've had, you know, in the US in, in history. And the, the, the effect of that, I think, is, is really what we need to be studying right now, right? Um, and what a lot of people will do, and, I, and we, had a, we had a conversation about this last week, is that, you know, they'll use kind of... Uh, the top level formula, which is, you know, a money velocity kind of formula where you would assume that the injection of liquidity into the system is inflation generating. But that doesn't really work when you kind of take into account the plumbing of this inflation system. Right. right. So. So when you really think about what central banks have done, central banks have gone out and purchased a bunch of assets 
in exchange created a bunch of reserves at a lot of at commercial banks, right? Some of these reserves are accessible to the public, but largely speaking, most of them are not. Then once we actually look at, okay, so there's bank reserves and there's M1. M1 is kind of like the accessible component of bank reserves, bank reserves being much bigger. When you actually look at what is actually happening to this M1, right? You have an extremely large savings component of this M1. Sure. Right? And where is that savings really coming from? Uh, most of it is coming from an, a precautionary need to save, right? Because economic prospects are kind of dim. And at the same time, you also have the situation where you aren't really sure if there's going to be ongoing fiscal stimulus. Sure. Right? And, and there's also a degree of kind of pent up demand in the sense that, you know, as much as I could spend on all the different things I could earlier pre-pandemic, I can't during, you know, a semi-quarantine kind of lockdown situation. So to come back to your question, I think that, yes, there isn't much else, right? But there's a lot under the surface of looking at credit and money. Yeah. I mean, and a couple of indicators doesn't cut it. You have to kind of go through the line by line items and say, okay, how does this actually flow through into these very big kind of abstract concepts of growth and inflation? Mm -hmm. And, you know, those can't be done in like two charts and a couple of lines. Right. Yeah. It, um, just tracing, tracing all of those money flows. Um, I mean, that seems, that seems so key. Uh, for like identifying like the level of growth, how much growth, and then where that growth is going to come up. And I think, yeah. I think this actually will, will be helpful because this kind of connects with growth and inflation slash deflation, what we saw in 2020. Yeah. But when we look back and we, you know, we, we kind of knew this as we were, you know, coming out of the lockdowns and stuff like that, but a lot of the service industries, they were just kind of falling apart while a lot of manufacturing started to rebound a lot more. And if we even look at, you know, the price index on those and, you know, the different inflation indicators we have on those, we saw, you know, a pretty big divergence. Whereas, you know, maybe in the past, when we look at business cycles with the, the manufacturing and non-manufacturing index of the PMIs, you know, they, they basically, you know, stay together. You know, they're, they're not doing anything too crazy, but, you know, this time they were kind of diverging a bit more. Yeah. So, you know, when you're, when you're looking at things in the actual like economy and tracing that money and credit are you looking specific sectors that it's going to and are you breaking things down on that level like where is all the capital flowing specifically on a sector basis well so the the way i i think to kind of make sense of this is that there are two americas right now in two different senses right there is the wealth divide and then there is kind of the pandemic divide Hmm. Right. Okay. And, 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 and those things are obviously, you know, it's like a Venn diagram. Those things are kind of interrelated uh, in a sense. Right. But you have two Americas in the sense that there's one, one part of America. So say, let's say, you know, the, the, the 40% and up of the income distribution, right? So the, the top 40% of the income distribution versus the bottom 60% of the income distribution. And, you know, the, the higher you go up on the income distribution, the more, the more financial assets that they own. Right. Yep. And the lower you go, the more the rig they are to nominal wages. 
right? The more dependent they are on their wage income to spend. Yeah. And so that's one, one, type, one type of kind of an way of looking at America. And then the flip side is kind of looking at it through the pandemic lens, where if you actually look at the spending component, the components of personal consumption expenditures, which is in the personal income and savings reports that's put out by uh, the BEA, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really rich source of data if you're willing to actually comb through it. Um, and what you see is that the, there's, there's definitely a pandemic theme to spending in that there are 16 subcomponents of spending, right? There are, there are three to five that are doing extremely well, far better than they've ever done in history, right? But where that money is actually coming from is from other components that have lost. So I can give you an example, right? Um, yeah. You have food services and accommodations, which includes things like hotels, restaurants, et cetera, you know, places you'd go to eat and enjoy stuff like that, which right. are absolutely trashed, right? They're probably down about, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure I remember the number off the top of my head, but in nominal dollars, it's, you know, in double digits. Right. On the flip side, you have this other item, which is called food and beverages for off-premises uh, off consumption which is one of the most, the strongest contributors right now to personal consumption expenditures in the United States, mm. right? Yeah. That includes things like gro grocery purchases and you know, meat and poultry and eggs and things that you would buy that you, where you're basically taking spending where you would have taken it to food services and accommodations and you've transferred as much of that spending as you can to buy groceries for at home. Interesting. So yeah. you, you basically have this situation where you, you have the average looks like there's a lot of there's there's this you know a roughly kind of a recovery kind of theme sure. but if you look at certain segments of the economy it's absolutely terrible yeah um so i think that really kind of looking under the aggregates is where you know you get a lot more color on these things yeah um maybe i can kind of expand or get your thoughts just so that maybe we can unpack it a little bit more but kind of those two segments you talked about. The first one is, you know, you see all the upper income people with their assets and you move down. And a lot of the purchases that are gonna be for lower income people, they're gonna be directly connected with their wages. And so you can watch wages as we're also looking at spending. And if we see this huge jump in wages, then it seems like there would be an inflationary, uh, you know, response to that from the demand side, right? And then kind of like from that, you're moving over to like consumption, like, okay, what are all of these people over here actually buying? And I think it's really, really interesting that, that you kind of break down the sectors like that and that the kind of takeaway for a lot of the movement and capital flows in the economy in 2020 hasn't been a restorative effect, but it's just been redistributing GDP. It's not like we're growing new GDP and we're in a good spot. We've just kind of taken it from this sector and put it over here and and like all these different sectors and kind of plugged them in here. And it looks like everything, you know, oh, it's back to normal on the, on the surface. But in reality, there's all these sectors that have been, whether we want to say permanently or for a long time crushed, and all these others have been given this really strong boost. When, would you say it's a good way to describe it or how would you refine that? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think that that's, that's the right way to kind of describe it. You know, you've, there, there, there's, you know, I'm not quite certain about the structural changes that are going to happen based off, you know, what's happened with this pandemic, right? Like I, I can't really speak to that that much because I think that that's a completely different line of inquiry. Um, but what you're saying is on point in that 
you do you you aren't what you aren't seeing you're seeing growth and when you say growth it's not necessarily a growth recovery right mm-hmm. because when you actually look at what's under the hood remember one person's income is another person's spending right so if there are a whole bunch of, if there are a whole bunch of the areas of the economy that are getting absolutely smashed that means that these people's incomes are also being absolutely smashed. So there's one there's one segment of the economy that might be doing well, but the other isn't doing as well, and that isn't really broad-based growth. So I think John will actually be able to touch on this better than me, but you know, you, you're, you're seeing the effects of income disparity a lot more, at least in my opinion. You know, you see social strife and you kind of see all these complications with the US political system and I think that a lot of it is a sign of the times in that you you increasingly have this situation where what the aggregates kind of show is not representative of what's happening for most people, right? It's, it's true for some people, but it's not true for everyone. And I think that, you know, the amount of political polarization and, you know, social unrest we're seeing is really kind of a function of that. So I'm going to, uh, up on that because uh, that's I, I agree with a lot of a Hansen I can't provide a, lot, a couple more specifics so it, the easiest way we could sort of compare and contrast this is looking how Europe handled the crisis and how the U.S. handled the crisis and how that has affected sort of income inequality and stability um, so if we look at places that have a lot of money like Germany um, income inequality really hasn't moved in any direction because the social welfare state in Germany is so well capitalized by just German savings in general, that they've essentially been able to place the economy on pause. Obviously, the economy has declined, um, but they've essentially been able to put the consequences on pause because of their more structured government and more trusted institutions. Um, Obviously, there have been some protests, but nothing compared to what the U.S. has experienced or even what Italy has experienced. Um, Italy, a country that has a lot of financial problems, that doesn't have nearly as robust a social welfare state as they used to before they joined the euro, has seen essentially no movement up or down in the upper income bracket, but a pretty significant decline in the quality of life and the lower income bracket and the lower half of the middle uh, middle income bracket. And so a lot of the these new um, lockdown protests in northern and central Italy have resulted because of that growing divide. Mm-hmm. The U.S., because... What, what surprised people like Rao so much when I wrote a paper up on this for him before I published it on the exchange was that the amount of federal control that Europeans have is considerably more than what U.S. institutions have. And because of that, the U.S. implementation of lockdowns after the first wave was always going to be very inconsistent and almost split right down party line. And so those states that have been able to reopen completely, um, that have stayed open, I guess you could say, regardless of the consequences, like your Floridas, your Texases, your Arizonas, your North and South Carolinas, the income gap has actually narrowed pretty significantly since the start of the crisis, mostly because people who were formerly put on furlough or unemployed were able to return to the workforce because their economies reopened. Um, The Florida unemployment rate went from 14% to 6.6% when the Florida unemployment rate before the crisis was 4.4. And so they're 2% higher unemployment than what they were before, but they're almost back to normal. Um, Texas went to 15% because of the crash of the oil market 
a lot more people were unemployed than they were in Florida. Sure. Um, but now they're at an unemployment rate that's almost the exact same as Florida's, 6.4%, mm. up from 3.3% before the crisis. And so we've seen, um, obviously, income inequality has gotten worse in this country, but it's very selective of where it has gotten worse or where it has stayed the same or gotten even a little bit better because of these lockdowns. And so the new crisis this country is going to face within the next year, year and a half, is the growing income divide between those states that have stayed open, regardless of COVID, those states that have stayed closed because of COVID, and those states that have had mixed mandates that have either in that have partially enforced strict rules on lockdowns or have strict rules on lockdowns that aren't enforced. And it's because of this mixed prescription and this sort of autonomy given to states to handle this crisis that we're going to see um, instability in blue states rise over time because there's going to be a lot of people who don't have work anymore and that are too poor to move to a state that has weathered this crisis considerably better economically. So uh, when you think about the wealth income inequality, that seems like a pretty strong connection between like this idea of, and maybe it's a little more complex than this, but like, you know, this link between demographics and also like this, you know, this idea of like credit and financial conditions. Like, it seems like that's in one, in one sense, one of the links between those two things, right? And as like, how would you guys say that income inequality expands or contracts as you move through business cycles or longer term business cycle or uh, secular cycles or however you want to say it? How would you say that thing that moves as you go through different cycles? So I can start this and then Ahan can probably pick up after to get into the more details because yeah. he's, and he's obviously it? more... What does it indicate too? I love it. Yeah, you know. Uh, so if we look at so what started this income inequality debate was essentially the first years of the Reagan administration, which is basically eighty to eighty-five, okay. um, and that's where you would see um, average wages sort of flatline, but the wealth of people who hold assets started increasing, and that is just simply because the baby boomers went from being young workers to mature workers, workers that put in a larger portion of their income into assets. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it's not that workers have necessarily become poorer. In some sense, some circumstances they have. Um, it's that people who hold assets have just gotten so much richer. And that's just because there's so much money in the system that everything essentially appreciates regardless of the quality of the asset. It's why we had Enron. It's why we had the subprime crisis. It's why we had the Euro crisis. It's just, it's just too much money in the system. And when there's too much money in the system and yields are pushed down, money just goes to irresponsible places. And so in places like Europe, where the demography is significantly older, where you get into the ratio of one young worker to two older people or one young worker for four elderly people, they face a truly devastating crisis where there's a ton of people who are taking money from state pension funds, their 401ks, but there's no money in the system left mm -hmm. for children to get jobs. Yeah. People in the United States were, were sort of lucky because the baby boomers had kids in the United States while they didn't have them in Europe. And so it's going to be a one-to-one -one workers to retirees or a one-to-one point five. And so that that's still going to be pretty bad and significantly contractionary through this, this decade. Um, but there will still be enough money in American markets to where new jobs can be created. 
But those spots that are created are going to be very competitive, very contested, and it's always going to be a battle for work. Um, obviously, that sounds bad, but that's significantly better than our counterparts in Europe are probably going to go through this decade. Sure. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a very fair perspective, and I think that you know he's he's definitely right. John's definitely right in the sense that this isn't a problem that has started in the last few years. It's a it's a it's a very old problem, and. I, I think I would actually um, add something to what, what he's saying, which is that there has been, you know, one, one of the most interesting things. And, you know, if you, if you actually look at, you know, spending and you look at CPI, right, the fastest growing component of both of those things is this item called recreational goods and vehicles, right? Um, the, it, its growth is primarily driven by the purchases of computers, software, and, um, you know, other tech-related accessories and apps and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you've basically had this one component grow at a phenomenal rate, right? And you also had this one component experience, experience phenomenal deflation, mm -hmm. right? And this, this is the thing about relative inflation and deflation, right? If inflation is happening everywhere, it's inflation. If it's in, inflation is, or deflation is happening in certain pockets, and not in others, it's redistributed, right? Can you say that again? So if inflation is happening everywhere, right. then it's inflation, right. right? But if inflation is only, so if you're, if only you are inflationing, experiencing inflation, right? And yeah. I am not, you're effectively getting poorer. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right, so now when you, when you have a situation where you have this one component, right? Which is, which has this massive kind of deflationary surge right what what you what you basically have is you have a massive run-up in profits in this one mm. segment of the economy right and that that profit that profit gain is driven by two things it's it's the trade-off between productivity and wages right so as as technologies and the technology sector became far more efficient at allocating capital the rest of the world you did not need to provide them with wages that increased at a, a, a rate commensurate with the rise of tech. Yeah. And the, the, the difference between, so the balance between productivity and wages is what's translated into profits for large corporations. And people that have owned chunks of these large corporations have done extremely well. Mm. Now, the thing is that, like, like, he, like John has said, that there are select few that are asset owners in today's economy, right? And those gains have, have created a situation where you basically have this classical kind of description of labor versus capital and capital is really winning. Mm. And I think that's the source of a lot of the tensions we see today, which is kind of why you see all these questions about tech antitrust and a lot of pressure on billionaires to, you know, give away their money and things like that. And, you know, talking about progressive taxation, you have Biden who may actually have some kind of tax reform. So I think that all of those are signs of this redistribution we've kind of seen where certain people have been able to leverage technology to be able to generate immense amounts of profits, whereas other people have only been able to make the money that wages could make for them. Hmm. Got it. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I think, um, you know, something I think about, I, I've always thought about, you know, inflation or deflation's effect on 
any, like what you just said, like any kind of debt and how it transfers wealth to either the debtor or the creditor, depending on the impact of inflation or deflation. And it seems like just that idea of, and, you know, help me if I'm getting this right, of inflation being in certain pockets of the economy, as opposed to others, then a lot of capital can be flowing there. And you have people, you know, maybe disproportionately or however it might be, uh, their wealth increasing in those sectors because they happen to be pockets of inflation while the rest of the economy could be in a deflationary environment. With, you said it's kind of like a big picture idea of kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. That's def- that, that, that's, that, that is what I'm saying. You know, I think that every, and this is really important, right? Like people want to say that PP, CPI or like PCE inflation is incorrect because, you know, like the price of eggs went up or whatever it is went up, right? Sure. Um, or, or, you know, there's like, I track commodities, copper, this and this, and they're all up 20% year over year. What do you mean there's no inflation? There's got to be something wrong with CPI. Um, you know, and, and, and we can get into that, actually, because that's something I, I, I've been looking at recently. And, you know, I have a strong view on. Um, yeah. But that's something that Daniel DiMartino Booth often says is that CPI is incorrect. Or the way they yeah, so inflation. I, I, I think that it, it really depends, right? So if, if you're talking about everyone has a different inflation basket, first off, right? Like your inflation is different from my inflation. So what you see is different from what I see. And then there's also the aspect of like most people that are mistrusting of CPI statistics tend to use anecdote, right? Like I've seen the price of copper rise. So like inflation must be up or, you know, something I buy every day is up like fivefold. So CPI isn't right. That doesn't necessarily make sense. And then there's also, I think there's this narrative today, right? Because you've had very, very large amounts of monetary stimulus created and you have a lot of commodities kind of rallying that, oh, that, and you know, you have even the tips market kind of rallying, right? Or the tips yields rallying. You, you have this conception that, oh yeah, inflation is bound to rise. And I think that what is missing from that narrative is that you need to look at the CPI basket. And I'm not talking about the composition. You need to look at the size of the CPI basket. Just in the US, right? The basket of goods that's included in say, not CPI, but PCE inflation is about $13.5 trillion, right? If you combine the issuance of tips, the production of oil, the production of gold, and the production of copper all together, they don't, they don't even scratch the one third of that, of that basket. Yeah. Hmm. So this idea that, that rallying in these commodity markets, which are relatively small compared to economies in terms of production could cause some kind of huge inflation effect, I think isn't necessarily right. Because at the end of the day, these, the size of monetary stimulus, you have a, almost you know, $95 trillion of global economic activity. You know, monetary stimulus itself this year, if you measure global M2 growth, it's probably around 15, between 15 and $20 trillion. Now, that monetary stimulus is commensurate with the size of global economic activity that it's trying to stimulate. But it is way, way, way larger than any commodity markets or market indicators that most people are kind of looking at today. Right. right? And the ability for even a spillover of that liquidity into commodity markets to be able to cause commodity markets to rally extremely hard 
is immense. So I think that there is definitely a lot missing on the narrative about what is actually happening with all this liquidity and the relative size of these things. Yeah, so um, I'd love to ask you a question, kind of unpack that a little more. You know, it. Um, I I think the you know the, the video that just came out on inflation that was uh, with um, yeah the, the stud with the coffee mug. You know, where um, I forgot what his name is. Uh, it was with the the, the Van Meter guy. Um, you guys are leaving me hanging here. Uh, it was a really great. So I don't video. know if you're talking about yourself or not because you just said stud with a coffee mug and that's well, you. Well, I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know. Um, no, I'll, I'll post. He's the, just plugging uh, himself. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not. Um, no, it was a video with uh, Stephen Van Meter and, and um, this, Michael Ashton. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, that Michael guy. Ashton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's I fantastic. What was that? He's fantastic. Yeah, he was really, really, really helpful. Um, I think he explained inflation and, and what that means, and he broke down the CPI very similar to what you're talking about. I'm not sure if you've gotten any of your ideas from him or you've kind of uh, been able to use him as a resource, but uh, I think, you know, when he was just talking about the relative relationship of what inflation is and, you know, it's, you know, the relative ability of, you know, dollars to be able to purchase some kind of good or service. I think it's important to realize that the dollar amount that you can spend on a specific good or service can be impacted by the supply side or demand side of whatever it might be. And, you know, maybe you can break that down a little bit more because, you know, there, the, the price of copper can move because there's less copper being mined from mines or because there's the same amount being mined in a consistent manner and there's a higher demand for it. And both of those things are dynamically moving at different times in the economy and can impact the dollar. In addition to what you were just saying, this huge growth in M2 and maybe that liquidity is spilling over. So, um, and I'd actually, be, I'd actually be interested if you guys have any thoughts on like how, how exactly would that M2, you know, maybe this QE or this expansion of stuff like that, how does that liquidity spill over to commodity markets and, and pump those up? Would, would that be just supply and demand or how, how would that M2 spill over? So I, do you mind if I take this first, Ahan? No, go ahead, please. All right. So just a couple of anecdotes about inflation. So I, copper is something we've been uh, consistently hitting on. Right. And a lot of that has to do with um, sort of the two factors that China is beginning to stimulate by building infrastructure again. And then also all the major copper producers being essentially taken offline because of the virus. Um, Chile, Australia, and some of the more core African countries are the major copper producers. Um, Australia has essentially been shuttered for most of 2020. Uh, Chile had massive problems with infections um, through the latter half of the year. So they've been shut down for about half of 2020 and don't look like they're going to reopen until the summer. And then uh, Africa has been having problems in general. And so when you have those two things, that's obviously going to be uh, pressure on the supply side and demand side, so prices are going to go up. Um, what's more interesting in the United States is that because people aren't going to restaurants as much anymore, the price of steak and high grades of meat has actually gone down because restaurants are actually not buying up as much as they used to. Mm. But ground beef, the stuff you use for make homemade tacos or making your own hamburgers, that price has gone up four times because more people are staying home. They're choosing the cheaper cuts of beef, which is your ground beef, and therefore prices have gone up. So 
for people who are staying home but buying steaks, it's been a very good year for you. But if you're serving ground beef to your family and trying to make homemade tacos, it's been a very bad year. And when we start talking about how this stimulus money and how um, M2 and how that quantitative easing stuff has been distributed, we start seeing some some problems. Um, for obviously when the Federal Reserve starts pushing money into the system, it goes into pushing asset prices up. This is one of the things that uh, Peter Schiff, a lot of the gold bugs were mentioning with the first, second, and third QE from 2010 till present day is that, oh, this is going to create inflation because they're printing money and it's going to the system. It didn't cause inflation. In fact, the Federal Reserve continuously complained for most of this past decade that inflation's not being created. And Wait, leadership is- wasn't right? Okay. <laughs> um, and the places where inflation is being created are the places that's causing problems like asset markets. And so the Federal Reserve has contributed indirectly to income inequality. Um, but when we look at the stimulus money, a lot of that essentially went into fill in the hole that came from the lockdowns. And so shutting down the economy essentially put a third of the economy on hold. And so the government effectively stepped in and filled in maybe uh, three quarters of the economy when an entire third needed to be filled, which that in itself is still deflationary because you're just trying to fill in a hole. And the problem is, is that when you're handing out money to companies and businesses just to stay open, or to local governments or local principalities to keep um, federal or state workers employed, that's not going to create inflation. Um, state workers are some of the most unproductive and inefficient workers in uh, the employment space. And so if you're looking for them to increase um, paperwork um, and to keep them employed, it's actually pretty contractionary. And so a lot of the things where that money went to weren't inflationary. And so if you were to put money into the system, uh, which is like the, the direct checks thing that has become so popular over the past two years, that could be inflationary. Just giving people $2,000, $3,000 checks to go and spend or pay off their credit cards, then you might start seeing inflation pick up. But when you're putting money into companies that are suffering from a demand collapse like airlines, or you're putting them to keeping schools open, or just keeping federal and state workers employed, you're not going to be creating inflation. You're just trying to fill in a hole. Yeah, I think uh, I think that you're right on a lot of counts, and I think that when you are talking specifically about you know state governments and things like that, you're definitely right. But what I do think is I think there's a caveat, which is there's also this element of when these direct fiscal transfers. So you know you kind of have two kinds of transfers, right? You've had like the COVID specific measures, and you also have what you know, people would call like automatic stabilizers, right? So you have unemployment benefits, right? Which you kind of had a top up with, with, with COVID, but you already have unemployment, unemployment benefits existing. So if you actually look at like, if you, if you actually look at how much of fiscal transfers was non-COVID related, it's relatively stable over time over this year, you know? So you have about, about 11 to 13% of personal income right, entire total personal income was in the form of these automatic stabilizers. The kind of variation in, you know, total government stimulus came from these things that you're talking about, which are like checks and, you know, an additional top up on unemployment insurance and things like that. Um, and that has contributed to a lot of variation. The, the interesting thing is 
that yes, those things can be inflationary, but so far they haven't been largely because they've been deposited into just cash balances. They've, they've just gone into households and into savings accounts. Mm-hmm. And whether this, this largely is, in my opinion at least, and you know my opinion is very different from reality, um, but I think that, uh, in my opinion, I, this is largely a precautionary saving kind of thing. Yeah. Right? So yeah. every incremental dollar you've received from these COVID-specific kind of programs has gone into savings because, one, because of political gridlock, you're unsure about the continuity of these payments. And two, you're unsure about the length of your of of the economic downturn. So the the and I mean you add to that the fact that spending opportunities are kind of minimized when you're you know in a quarantine kind of situation, yeah. you you can't really spend those cash balances. And what you've had now, so people like to look a lot at savings rates, right? Like they like to look at income and then do you know percentage of that income that's saved as a savings rate. But what about the stock of that of that of that saving, right? Total savings. If you look at total savings, right, and you normalize it by the employed population, it's at all-time record highs. Even if you forget the, you know, the fact that you want to forget the fact that you'll normalize it by employed population because you know employed population has taken a massive hit, it's still at all all-time highs. So basically, you have about in savings, uh, per my estimate, you have about. Seven, I think the number was about ninety thousand dollars or something like that per person. Now that 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 income is not evenly distributed, but it's more money per person saved than ever. Now the question, really, when it comes to inflation, is whether that money is going to make it out, right? Mm-hmm. And I think of that savings account, right? What of their savings account, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's going to make it out of those savings accounts, right? And I think that what we really need to consider which a lot of, I think the common kind of financial narrative is going to miss is this focus on savings rates, right? Like how much of your, your, your total income check do you save? And that number could kind of settle at a lower number. But what you really, really want to see is kind of people dipping into this really large savings pool that you have mm. and spending more of that, right? Because the stock of savings is so large. And if you actually have that stock of savings being wound down a little, because it can be normalized and still be above trend growth, right? If you actually have a normalization of the levels of absolute spending, of absolute saving, then you probably have a much more inflationary situation than you currently have today. But as long as those fiscal, those, like those fiscal stimulus checks, right? Yeah. If they go to individuals and those individuals put it into savings accounts that is the equivalent of doing qe and not getting it into the real economy because right. it is basically the same thing it's just commercial bank deposits and yeah. just to sort of just back up what he's been saying that's sort of the the divide of the savings rate that we've been seeing by income bracket so if we look at the people who are in the lower income bracket so the the uh, the bottom 50 percent of the country these checks have been like a 33% increase of their traditional income. Mm-hmm. So their spending has largely remained the same. They still have to feed their families. They still have to pay rent and they still have to pay off de- debts, credit card debts, car loans, and all that fun stuff. And as a result, their spending has actually increased um, over the past year, despite the pandemic. Um, and we've seen that for most of the lower middle class and then middle middle class but the people who are 90% of the traditional spenders in the economy are those in your upper income brackets and upper middle income brackets. And the problem is 
the top 1% of the country isn't spending money. And so a lot of the suburb, suburban, well-off, upper-income people are just staying in their homes and they're not spending. Or where they are spending, they're spending on home improvements, which is just driving up the value of their homes, especially in some of these markets where uh, valuations are going through the roof, like in Florida, like Georgia, like Texas, like Utah. And so you start seeing inflation in some different areas or you're not seeing it at all because as Ahan was mentioning, a lot of these people are putting in larger portions of their paychecks or these stimuluses right into their savings account or they're putting it into assets where it doesn't necessarily appear in metrics. Yeah, so I there, there was uh, two questions I kind of wanted to bring up to you guys. Uh, first one um, was when I was reading the Lacey Hunt report recently, he made a lot of really good points about uh, how this very similar to what you said, Ahan. I mean, I mean, if, if this money is just going to the economy, it's just going into like a savings account. It's in one sense, it's the equivalent. You know, functionally, it can be the equivalent of QE, um, and it can still have a deflationary, or it's not having the inflationary impact they want. But I think another thing is it doesn't have a multiplier effect that the fractional reserve banking system would have with you know larger amounts of um, you know, quantitative easing happening. So theoretically, you know, banks could lend all of this money. That that doesn't happen when you have just fiscal, uh, just payments to people. Is that right? Like any any thoughts on that exactly? I think this is an interesting one, right? Uh, this, is, this is a really interesting one because I got a lot of respect for Lacey Hunt. You know, he's a really smart guy, very smart sure. monetary economist, obviously. Um, but the, the, here's the hard thing about money multipliers right like the, the the theory kind of goes that you get you know one person gets money then the next person gets money and the next person gets money and that's not exactly what happens though right um you you basically have a commercial bank which creates credit given a certain base of money and offsets transactions between people right so the real money multiplier isn't so much like I spend it, you spend it, you spend it, someone else spends it. It is how much leverage a commercial bank is willing to take. Right. Right. So the thing is that if commercial banks are unwilling to lend to the real economy, um, that's the that's the real question about multipliers. Right. And here, the thing is that that commercial banks have largely not wanted to lend in the current environment because it is far more profitable and safe to take any excess, you know, any excess reserves, deposit savings or whatever, and use the asset side and invest them mm -hmm. in liquid securities because the cost of, you know, giving out an illiquid, you know, an illiquid loan is the management of that loan. And, you know, the, the likelihood of default and all those things. Whereas if you, invest them into a liquid security in an uncertain environment, it's far easier to change your mind and manage that money. So the commercial banking system is really what I think about when I think about, you know, these money multipliers. Yeah. Um, I do think that, you know, he's definitely right. I, I mean, the net effect of that is the exact same as what he's saying, right? Like that, you know, monetary policy can have a multiplier, but the thing is, it's not, right? So right. how does that make monetary and fiscal that different? Right. Right. Yeah. If you don't have a multiplier on monetary, like if monetary policy had this multiplier, wouldn't we have just crazy amounts of growth right now? 
just insane, right? Like we should have just been growing at 10% a year, but totally. it's not because there's no actual multiply on this stuff. Um, and the reason is just because commercial bank lending is extremely depressed relative to the amount of cash they're keeping. Um, yeah. Now on the fiscal side, I, I do think, yeah, there is no multiplier to fiscal stimulus checks. There's absolutely none. But the real question I think is the, is there an inflationary outcome when there is there any growth smoothing that comes from it? Because as of now, it, it there hasn't been much. So net net, you're not really looking right. at a situation where monetary policy is more powerful than fiscal policy. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting point. And I think it's it's interesting uh, how a lot of major players in the market have basically said you know, because of this new combination of fiscal and, uh, you know, monetary policy coming together, you know, Rock. there's going to be massive inflation. Um, uh, it's it, when I, when we, uh, multipliers are actually almost right up my alley because it's fiscal policy is one of the things that Paul, Paul Krugman, who is like one of the people who sounds really smart, but he really isn't. Um, no, no, and his, right and, and his, right in his book, End This Recession Now, which I think came out in 2010, um, one of the things he talked about was the Obama stimulus, which was some $800, $900 billion in fiscal stimulus for R&D, for renewable energy, public sector support, and all this other fun stuff. And he's just like, okay, the multiplier in this should be one, three to one. So for every $1 the government puts in, there should be $3 created in stimulus. The multiplier on the Obama stimulus was 83 cents to the dollar. And so if anything, it was contractionary and how the multiplier was eventually done out. And the reason for that is, well, a lot of economists will argue is that the money wasn't managed properly or the money wasn't spent. Uh, there wasn't enough money spent. Um, Paul Krugman said that they needed to at least triple the size of the Obama stimulus to get the three times multiplier. Um, the problem with the Obama stimulus and most government stimuluses is that they're not spending money on things that generate multipliers. Um, when you're doing R&D for renewables, that is a five to 10 year time horizon when a product might be able to come out that can yield the, uh, the return that you're looking for on a fiscal stimulus. Um, if you're helping New Jersey state employees stay employed, which is what the Obama stimulus helped do, um, you're not generating a multiplier. And so this notion that I, I think in general, they're right. Um, that government and monetary fiscal spending um, does tend to create inflation. But when you start adding on the variables that many of these situations arise to be addressed through these measures, you have to look at how contractionary is the event and is the money that's trying to fill the hole exceeding the damage that's been done. And so in the United States where the money has not even come close to refilling the hole that was the total economy in 2019, it's still deflationary. Um, in Europe, they only passed a $1.7 trillion Euro package for all the members of the EU, all 27 members, if you add all those countries together, it's the size of the United States. So it's the size of one, it's like the size of half the CARES Act that was passed last year. They're filling in like a marginal portion of the whole while most of the federal level governments are picking up the slack. And so even then, despite what is perceived as a ton of money printing, there's not 
any sign that inflation is going to be created until that hole is filled. Yeah, would, you, would you would you say that a lot of the, I mean, is the I, I, maybe this is maybe this is a kind of like obvious obvious uh, answer to this question, but is the fiscal having any impact at all, like on on the actual economy? Is it just offsetting deflation, or is it just like yeah, it's helping out a little bit, but in the grand scheme of things, no, not really. Like how how do you how do you gauge the the level of like like is there more malinvestment than actual like profit that it's you know strength that it's creating? I think it's offsetting deflation and offsetting early retirements. Okay. Um, obviously, the payment protection loans, the PPP program, it, even from the outside, it, it is massive fraud in those small business loans. A lot of favors being chosen, a lot of money distributed to party favors. Mm. It looks bad. Um, but in general, what you're trying to ensure is that baby boomers who are going to be retiring in 2023 and 2024 don't, don't retire early. Mm. Um, and we've seen some success there, but not a ton. So baby boomer males are still returning to the workforce for the next one to two years, but they're likely retiring in 2025. Where we're seeing that the, these programs sort of fail is baby boomer women not returning to the workforce. So uh, last month's unemployment numbers were specifically almost 100 and was 145, 165,000 jobs lost, but almost all of them were exclusively for women while 16,000 jobs for men were created, it is very likely that if you were to break down those numbers by age, a lot of them would be in the baby boomer bracket. And so you're seeing a lot of career women retiring and choosing to retire and not get back into the, uh, into the rat race, while some baby boomer men are choosing to try and jump back in. And so a lot of these programs are just trying to ensure that there's still money in markets. Uh, markets will stay partially liquid people aren't going to be tapping their social security early and there's going to be less pressure on the the, the, uh, the federal government in the short term um, delaying the inevitable. Um, it's why we've seen a slight recovery in total job participation when it comes to the population, but we're not at the peak, which was I think 70, 69% of the population actively working and we're down to 55%. It's likely going to go down to 45% midway through this decade as baby boomers retire in mass. And then, once millennials and gen generation Z, my generation start hopping in more, then we could see those numbers return to 64, 65 and 68, but that's not gonna be till 2020, like 2035 or 2038. And so these like programs, as I've said before, are just trying to fill in the hole or delay a, an inevitable occurrence from occurring too early. I think I think this is really interesting, actually. You know, and I'm I'm just sort of thinking this out loud. Um, you know, and it, it, it really speaks to um, the uniqueness of is that a word uniqueness? Um, of, uh, of, oh, great, fantastic. Um, so it it really speaks to the uniqueness of this crisis, right? Which is that you know usually, like we discussed at the very start of this you kind of have a situation where, you know, asset values are expanding and credit is expanding and, you know, uh, it's just expanding on a, on a rising base of earnings. And eventually for some reason you have a pullback in this credit, which, you know, over time causes the pullback in income to a certain extent. Right. But what's been really unique about this crisis is that everything was going just fine 
and then all of a sudden you just had the rug swept out right from under you where incomes just disappeared overnight because you know what you couldn't go to your job anymore and that's definitely the hole that john is talking about now where where i think that you know i i think there's something worth thinking about is how much of that hole needed to actually be filled right because the thing is so if if economic activity contracts by like let's say 2 trillion dollars right the government doesn't necessarily need to come in and fill 2 trillion dollars because the idea is that you need to make businesses solvent because the the economic machine anyway runs on credit you need to make them solvent and you need to make sure that they're able to pay their bills so i think the size of monetary stimulus actually has been extremely large and sufficient but i think where it has really fallen short is that it has not necessarily gone to the places it needs to go to right and i think that's a very very important distinction because you look at the the size of growth of the fed's balance sheet right roughly 3 trillion dollars and then on top of that you know you add the fiscal stimulus of you know 3 and a half 4 trillion dollars it's it's you know 7 7 something trillion dollars 8 trillion dollars and the size of that stimulus is not paltry it's 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 huge but the problem really with it is that it hasn't gone to the places that john is describing so it's not so much a size problem it's that they just haven't been able to get it to you know the exact locations where it needs to go and it's 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 a challenge given the way the kind of you know the way the monetary system is set up because at the end of the day when it comes to monetary policy at least and i'm sure john could speak more to fiscal policy but at least with monetary policy banks are used as a conduit for monetary policy and right as much as the world right now likes to think oh the fed is in charge of everything and the printer goes brrr and all that stuff right um the 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 unfortunate truth is that the true transmission of monetary policy happens through the banking system and the banking system doesn't really care about monetary policy they care about making profits um so it's it's very hard to have a proper transmission when you have a system set up that is dependent on commercial banking activity mm. i think this is where you start seeing the divide between the the payment protection loans and then the main street lending pool that the federal reserve got access to um so what made the payment protection loan program a success cuz obviously a lot of money went, went where it shouldn't have like hedgei got a ppp loan to keep people employed at hedgei which is a financial firm that does a lot of technical analysis but doesn't really they're not mom and pop pizza shop so they yeah they got a hedgei loan between wow, that's unbelievable 500,000 to a million dollars it's insane wow. wow um but the reason why ppp was successful in the the main street lending program wasn't was because the irs has all these tax numbers for these small businesses and they know all these small and local banks that bank them and so all treasury has to do is connect the irs to these local banks and then set up the conduits for this money to be distributed at the local level and as ahan really rightfully mentioned um when the main street lending program was set up it was supposed to use the big banks as the conduit and because the big banks don't know these local small and local businesses not to mention they may not want to hand out the money in the first place um the main street lending program got i think 40 I think it's between 400 and 500 billion dollars but the only lent out 2.3 billion. 
And so yeah. as, a, as a success, the payment protection loans, they lend out close to 650 billion, while the Federal Reserve only lent out 2.2. Well, I think, I, I, I think one of the main reasons was, and I, was I, I have a good friend who works at a small bank, like under a billion assets, so it's a smaller one. And small. But you know they they uh, they uh, they just got a new thing for the PPP loans, and they had to work over the weekend because they got I guess new ones in or something like that for uh, the new session. They, they approved a new tranche, right? In the uh, the baby stimulus in December. Exactly, and basically he's like, we just get them out all as fast as possible because they're not they're no risk to us basically, and you know they collect their fee on them and. Basically, to qualify for them, you just have to show your revenue dropped for 2020 somehow due to related COVID. And he's like, mm-hmm. and all of our clients are just using Q2 of 2020 to, you know, show that they, you know, like lost revenue. And um, so, you know, and obviously those guys are incentivized to get out there on the streets, knock it on doors and be like, hey, we want to give you some money, you know, because they're just making their fee and they don't, they have none of the default risk. Well, they're, they're making their fee, but also... If the loan isn't used to maintain payroll, they have to pay a one percent interest rate over five years Whoa. to pay back. So it's it's a yeah, free nothing. interest rate for banks, and they also collect the fee on making the loan. So, so it's a great deal for the banks, and it's a great deal for the small businesses to keep people employed, or it's a really cheap business loan for those businesses that don't have a large payroll, yeah. but might want to do a small expansion. Well, yeah, and and I'll just say I don't know if this is you know the case for. Um, I don't know if this is the case for like a lot of different banks, but I do know that uh, at least my friends, my my friend, my friend's bank, basically he's like they have too much liquidity right now because they've given out loans, uh, or they they've given out those loans, but individuals aren't using that money yet. They're just they've just taken just holding on to it. They're just holding on to the cash, and so they literally have too much liquidity on their balance sheet. You know, relatively, you know, I get you know whatever. Yeah, but. They're like, oh yeah, there's weight. There's- I feel so bad. Banks have so much money. That's a, <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> um, but I think it's just another. Banks got so much money. They have to complain about how much. Oh, uh, the money. <laughs> Where are we gonna put it? Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting, uh, and I think you know, um, kind of looking forward and hopefully, kind of just like bringing all this together with with all of this, because there's so many just good thoughts that we've been going over here. Just looking forward, especially, and kind of connecting with the like the economy with actual like markets and that like you know liquidity transfer system. Like, what do you what do you see as like the current situation? And I know we talked about it a little bit, but and just move it into at least Q one and Q two of this year. I mean, strong you know growth or like what do, what do we move it into? I mean, I think we've already kind of said it doesn't seem like inflation, but what are you guys thoughts? Um, John, do you want to take it first or should I? Uh, you go ahead. I've taken the past two. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so let's, okay. So looking into Q1 and Q2, right? Um, so I, what I like to do is I, um, obviously I'm a, um, I'm a data nerd. So I spend a lot of time aggregating a lot of data. And basically what I do is I kind of, you know, people like to look at price to earnings and things like that. Um, to kind of gauge where you are in terms of prices. But what I really like to do is I like to look at 
the total market capitalization of you know all U.S. assets, which I kind of define as risk assets. So you know, treasury, uh, treasuries, MBS, CMBS, ABS, um, credit, so IG, high yield, the whole lot of equities, the whole lot of them. And I kind of aggregate that. So that's about a you know um, something like a hundred trillion dollars of market cap. And I look at that in relationship to kind of bank deposits, right? So, you know, uh, deposits of major uh, institutions and things like that. And what that kind of tells me, it gives me a rough idea of what, like how much, it's, it's almost a valuation measure, which tells me how much froth there is, right? Um, so we're still not actually at 2019 highs in that sense. So from, from a financial market standpoint, even though you've had a vast amount of stimulus and, you know, markets have rallied a lot, but, you know, we've definitely come back from COVID-19 lows, but we're still not at all-time highs. Um, we're at about four and a half of uh, four and a half. We're, a little, we're about 4.6 times total deposits, right, in terms of market cap. Um, and the all-time high is about 4.8 times. The, the, the series kind of mean reverts around four and a half. So that's my kind of markets barometer of, you know, how overvalued we are because i feel like that's a really important narrative these days right that people are kind of thinking about going into q1 and q2 which is oh my god things have rallied so much just because we've pumped money it's crazy it's a bubble um (laughs) unfortunately i think that you know what we like to define as bubbles is you know we like to look at things in relation to the earnings of certain assets, like we like to look at prices relative to stocks, and you know we uh, prices relative to the earnings of stocks and, and and measures like that. But I think that that doesn't really account for what's actually happening in this kind of liquidity system that we've been discussing today. So, broad, broadly speaking, on the asset front, I think that there is room to grow, and I think that when you really look at the spending accounts, there's a lot of opportunity for normalization of spending in certain areas versus the others, right? So I think there are two broad themes when it comes to um, normalization of spending. One is the normalization of these precautionary savings. And two is the the normalization of the, 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 the winners versus the losers, you know, in, in spending. And I think that if you can have a nice balance between those two, um, you can possibly see a very healthy recovery. I think that the normalization of the winners and losers in spending is really going to be determined by how well people can handle, you know, coming out of COVID-19 um, and how, how well policy is implemented about it. Um, and then you also have this large pool of savings, which could possibly make its way into the economy. So I think the setup is quite positive in the sense that there's potential, but there's a lot of stuff you could mess up along the way, right? right. Um, so I don't like uh, I, I, I don't like to make forecasts a quarter out because it just doesn't make sense to me because sure. you know things can change tomorrow, right? Uh, there can be a new strain of the virus tomorrow and if we could uh, we could have a tough time. But I think that the setup is good in the sense that there's a lot of there's potential growth. We have potential to grow and we have potential for assets to kind of stay at this level. Because okay. think about it. Remember, at the end of the day, the the Fed is still pursuing QE, albeit at a slower rate than they were last year, right? So you have about 120 billion of purchases still happening every month. Now, if you do one for one, even though that's not necessarily the case, if you do one for one uh, QE to 
to reserve creation at commercial banks, right? So cash creation at commercial banks, that roughly translates into an 8% appreciation of all asset market cap in 2021. So as long as the Fed keeps doing QE and you're at four and, a half, four and a half times of deposits, right? You have a setup where you can continue to have markets grind a little bit higher and you also can have kind of a real economic, you know, a real economic recovery. Um, I think that's broadly kind of how I look at it. I have a, um, um, well, not slightly, a lot more of a nuanced view on the dollar. FX is my main thing, just FYI, um, when we haven't really touched on that. But no. um, yeah, so the dollar, no. yeah. Uh, I think that the dollar actually could form going into Q1, Q2. Uh, and maybe we can talk about that some other time, but I don't want to drone on. So sure. uh, I'll let John go, yeah. Um, I guess I'm the bearish case here. Yeah. Um, we take the opposite side here in some ways. Um, what worries me, uh, so I've been talking about this as part of the, our conversations together, Jeremiah, about the narrative markets have been sort of holding on to for the past uh, year and a half is that a recovery is going to happen because of consistent stimulus and that we have a vaccine. Um, there is some troubling news on the vaccine front. Um, at least 40% of healthcare workers are not getting the vaccine. And that was a report out of Political yesterday, and that while the number isn't firm, a decent proportion of healthcare workers which have access to the vaccine right now are refusing to get it. And a lot of that has to do with the purported side effects of the vaccine being passed around on medical forms and just word of mouth between hospitals. And if you're trying to reopen the economy using the vaccine as the, the means to get there, um, that is possibly the killer of your narrative for reflation using vaccines. If there are decent side effects from the vaccine being distributed and your healthcare workers are not willing to take it, um, that should raise some concerns on the vaccine front. And then the stimulus looks very troubled. Um, Biden laid out his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan last week, and his administration's already talking it down to $1.3 trillion. So already they're starting seven hundred billion dollars cheaper than they were before. And we're looking like we're getting into the territory of another baby stimulus that was passed in December. And so while markets might be able to rally off this small stimulus, we saw markets sort of fall off a little bit after Biden's speech last week on Thursday, um, because they thought there was going to be a bazooka. And so even Rao talked about this a bit in his Friday briefings is that the general expectation for stimulus is four to $5 trillion. Biden, I, I always thought that was a bit of a stretch. Um, but the fact that Biden started at a low level and is already talking himself down even lower says that stimulus isn't great when it comes to hopes either. So when we start talking about economic growth through the rest of the year, um, because of the new impeachment articles that are making their way through the Congress, there is possibility that stimulus could be delayed as far back as late April. And so that obviously has some pretty scary implications for Q1. Um, if they don't have a stimulus passed within the $2 trillion mark, I think it's very likely we double dip back into a recession. Um, if they pass a $1.3 trillion stimulus, which is the number they're tossing around now, I think you have some decent growth in Q1 and Q2, but you stagnate for the rest of the year. And so 
where people are looking for growth to be positive in 2021, you might get less than 1% growth overall and cumulatively. And so when you start looking at those two factors together for the markets, you could start to see some considerable declines if a lot of these narratives don't end up playing out the way markets are hoping they play out, which is that sort of reflation narrative, stimulus is coming and reopenings are gonna happen. All right. Um, I guess uh, last thing, I don't know guys, what's something funny you saw this week in markets that you were like, oh, that's great. Nice, nice try or something like that. I think Nikola went up last week. No, really? I think it did. Dude, okay, that's a big deal. Mahan, <laughs> uh-huh. anything? Come on, man, you gotta um, give me something. This is way too man, serious. Man, I seen, uh, I seen this guy. Do you know uh, what's his name? The what I what I miss the the markets guy, uh, Bloomberg markets guy. What's his name? Joe Weisenthal. Yeah, Joe Weisenthal. Mm-hmm. Um, he 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 posted this thing. You know. Um, you know, cryptos were down 25% in a day or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I think they were up a shit ton the next day or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, fir- the first day he, he, he posts, uh, oh my God, cryptos are down so much. If cryptos are down so much, nobody is going to buy them. Failed currency. The next day he, he, the next day he, he posts when they're back up, he's like, oh my God, cryptos are up so much. Nobody's going to want to spend them now. Failed currency. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, crypto has that habit of dropping 30% and recovering 30% the next day. It's a really fun thing to watch. <laughs> Guys, I just have to say, I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum are probably two of the best assets out there that you could possibly buy. This is not investment advice, and I'm not liable for what Jeremiah says. <laughs> I, just, I, w- I might leave now. I know. <laughs> I'm just, I know, I'm totally messing. Uh, you know, I thought it was so funny in the, the Mike Green Panda video that he did. He had these two uh, guys on uh, for uh, pandemic analytics. And he just starts by being like, you know, like, tell us about your background. And they're like, all like data analytics guy. And he's like, so because of your background, what's your view on Bitcoin? (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) he was joking, but it was so funny because literally that's, that's everyone on every podcast and YouTube channel today. It's like, that's so interesting. You work at a grocery store. So this is relevant. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin? (laughs) So, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Uh, we will say to be continued. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.